Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Tamil Innovator Spotlight from TamilCulture.com, where we talk to individuals from the global Tamil community who are building great products, services, and initiatives. Ara and I are your co-hosts, and today we have a very exciting guest, Muhithin Siva. So Muhithin, can you just let us know a little bit more about yourself and your story? Uh, sure, yeah. Look, uh, I'm based in Sydney, Australia. I was uh, born in Sri Lanka, um, moved out to Australia when I was about 10 years old um, and have spent most of my working career in Sydney, uh, apart from a few years working in India. Uh, and I guess uh, spent pretty much all my career in financial services, working for most of the uh, Australian banks uh, before I started the recent venture that I'm uh, now um, looking to take to the next level. Okay, great. And, um, you know, can you tell us a little bit more about your capital investment firm and um, what it's currently working on? Yeah, so the central thesis uh, to the business and to what I do and what I believe in since I went to India between 2005 and 2008 is built around uh, the fact that uh, I think India is the next growth story um, that we are going to experience. We've all experienced um, what China did from the 1980s to 2010. Uh, and from an investor's point of view, my view was that uh, global investors are largely underinvested in what will be the third largest economy in the world over the next 10 years. And therefore, you know, my view was that that happened predominantly because people didn't have enough information. Uh, knowledge or insights into what made India India tick. So we built our business around that and we built our business around, uh, you know, passing on that knowledge and insight from local sources, local network, local connection to foreign investors. Uh, initially, our first foray in the first five years of developing our business has been Australian and New Zealand-based clients. And what we do is, uh, you know, we create knowledge series and insights and a transfer of information so that the uh, passing of money or investing of funds becomes an easier uh, thing to uh, part with um, rather than, you know, feeling like you're investing in something you don't understand. So that's the core of the business. Uh, essentially, it's an asset management business. It's a boutique firm. Uh, we only have five employees. Uh, and the focus of the firm is really to have people invest in uh, products that invest in India's growth story. And I, I want to dig further into obviously what you're doing with India Avenue and just again your thesis and you know revenue model. But I'm curious before that, um, the area of finance. You know, like what particularly sparked your interest in that area? And did you ever consider any other path, like career path when you were younger? Because I often talk to people, you know, they might be a lawyer or like an entrepreneur or something now, but if you ask them what they were considering when they were like five or 10 years younger, it might've been something completely different, but something sparked them or something accidentally took them down a particular path. So what was it for you that got you so, um, you know, passionate about this area of finance? Uh, look, when I was a young boy, uh, just like, everyone else I went through phases of wanting to be a Formula One driver or a, mm -hmm. a 
you know, uh, becoming a veterinary surgeon or, uh, you know, doing something totally different to what I'm doing today. But I'm going to give you a kind of a, a bit of a corny answer in that uh, when I watched, uh, you know, when I was in year 12, um, there was a, a Black Monday, such as that it was called, which was 1987, where, you know, a lot of investors lost a lot of money uh, as a result of share market falls. And that always intrigued me. Our money had such a deep impression in people's lives, uh, even though they they felt that it wasn't the most important thing. It did seem to impact people quite a bit. So, uh, you know, I was kind of captivated by that. Uh, watched the movies like Wall Street and so on, which seems, uh, you know, uh, so long ago now. And uh, for some reason, at that point, I, I kind of felt, look, finance and uh, perhaps at some stage being able to use that uh, that thought process around building wealth um, and, and helping people over the longer term sort of uh, generate uh, something for themselves that um, gave them long-term certainty or surety uh, was something that touched it. And just as a follow-up to that, um, you kind of talked about, you know, why you, were, you became passionate about finance um, and then you know, you spent 20 years before, like about 20 years or just over that, before you started India Avenue in this space, using your talent, your energy, your hard work to kind of build up or build experience and like build value in other companies. Um, so what made you decide in 2015, um, or I guess just before that, to, to start India Avenue and, you know, start something on your own versus continuing to grow your career in other companies, which I'm sure they would have been happy to have you as well. Uh, no, very good question. I think when I was in India, um, so ING was the firm I was working for, a Dutch bank. Um, they approached me and said, we'd like to build a startup business in India. Would you like to be part of that? Uh, so I moved my family over there, uh, lived in India for three years. Uh, was it, it, It's kind of addictive when you work for a startup and the startup has some success. Uh, you want to Think, challenge your own mind to think, well, maybe I can do this, or maybe uh, I, what sort of startup would I want to be involved in if I did it myself, or with a bunch of uh, people that I'm more closely networked to. So uh, that set, set my mind running. And then when I moved back to Australia, I had a, a, a group of people I'd worked with closely in India, as well as some I'd worked with in Australia. And we for three years, every Sunday, we would meet on Skype and just discuss what would this look like? Is it going to happen? Are we being unrealistic? When are we going to go ahead, if at all? And you go through ups and downs. But if you don't have a core belief of the concept, and if you don't think the concept can at some stage work, given the environment that surrounds you, uh, it's very difficult to have the energy to sort of, you know, that's really interesting. So when you, you know, moved your family to India, do you have any reservations? Were you nervous about that? And why did you ultimately end up coming back to Australia? Yeah, so, you know, my wife, uh, at the uh, time, you know, when I said we're moving to India, she said, you know, I've never been overseas. And, uh, and I said, okay, well, this would be an interesting first holiday, let's call it that. And when we moved to India, we certainly had reservations because it was, um, you know, whilst I may look like the way I look, I've spent most of my life in Australia. So that's 
what I'm kind of used to. Um, so when we moved over there, it was a transition. Uh, cultures were different, thinking was different, um, work ethics were different. So it certainly took, uh, you know, some time to get uh, sort of ingrained in that thinking. And that was for me, for my family, you know, fitting into schools and fitting into lifestyles over there uh, took a little while. But what we did was definitely separate ourselves from the expat culture and try and get more ingrained with what happened locally and understand and try and fit in. So you talked about, you know, every Sunday before you guys officially actually started doing this full time or, you know, making it more public, um, you guys got together and you um, discussed what the thesis would be and if it was a viable business. Um, I guess if you look at it from like a cooking analogy, like, you know, there's a winning recipe for kind of success. So how did you decide that, you know, these were the people that were the, the people that were going to make this a success if you did move forward? Um, and, you know, did any people when you, you know, you, you said three years before and you had, you know, recurring meetings every Sunday, did anybody drop off from the beginning to the end of that three-year process in terms of like when you're trying to put together a team? So here's the crux of it. I think that what the vision might look like at the beginning may not be what you end up with at the end. And adaptability is a critical aspect of this journey when you're incubating something. Uh, you know, I think, uh, as you asked, there are a couple of people who started with us on the venture who didn't end up at the starting point. And from the starting point to now, there are a couple of people who uh, were involved who are not involved. So, you know, that is part of the transition of any, I suppose, young business that starts with just an idea to getting to, um, you know, a boutique status that we are today. I think that was uh, because visions change, uh, adaptability, some people accept it, some people don't. Uh, different people are at different stages in their lives. So all those things take hold uh, when you're making this journey. And, um, you know, reflecting back on your journey throughout this, what are some of the kinds of challenges that you faced and had to kind of overcome? Uh, there are several challenges, you know, there would have been countless number of people who said, why are you doing this? It's stupid. You have a career job. Uh, you can just be comfortable uh, doing that for the rest of your life. Uh, you know, there's, uh, are you trying to prove something to yourself? All those sort of questions. So I think, you know, sometimes when people haven't done it, it's hard to grasp the personal satisfaction that it can give you rather than anything that's measurable by money or wealth uh, or, or something like that. It's more about, hey, this is something that is an idea that you have then created into reality. And in this case, you know, Australians typically don't invest in single country regions. India is seen as something which is you know, I don't know, I'll, I'll use Australianisms, but like dodgy, shady, you know, would I really put my money there? All the questions were like, uh, will I get my money back? I don't, I've, I'd had a business in India in the 90s and I didn't get anything back. Uh, aren't they behind? Isn't it corrupt? Uh, all those questions you face 
uh, and you know uh, several people who are in the industry, even Indians, said this is not going to work. So I think partly that drives you. Uh, you know, it did me. Some some people may respond to that differently, but for me, because my vision was quite fixated, I just wanted to find a way to make it work. Um, for me, I've always been fascinated with like finance-based companies, just because I know there's so, so many different revenue models, and some of them I understand, some I don't. So, if you were to break in, break this you know business model down to somebody that you know in layman's terms. Um, how does India Avenue, like how does the company get paid and like what is the business model? Yeah, so a finance business, particularly an investment management business, is all based on trust. Right? There is some point where you get to a point where everyone says, uh, FOMO, I want a bit of that and I want to get in, in, but that comes later. The initial part is all based on uh, trust that people have uh, around parting with the money. I mean, if you think about it, that is one of the biggest statements someone makes if they give you their money and trust you with managing it for them. So I think, uh, you know, in a, in a finance business like ours, the revenue model is essentially when money comes into the fund, there is a management fee that is charged to run the business. There's also a success fee if we deliver over and above expectations, uh, which is a percentage of that over and above expectation achieved, or the performance fee in our industry. The management fee typically uh, might be around 1%. So you can kind of do the maths on these are the assets they have, this is the management fee, performance fee is uh, icing on the cake if you can achieve that. So uh, just to follow up on that performance, is that is the expected like the expected result measured against the S and P five hundred or like what is the benchmark like how do you establish what that looks like because typically I've seen the carries be measured against S and P like if I put my money there you know I could have just done that so is that what it is Yeah so in our case it's the MSCI India which is the top hundred stocks of India uh, and it's like saying well if a monkey was to throw darts at a dartboard and just get an average return of what uh, stocks give you in India, then we have to outperform that. And the performance fee is levied only on the outperformance. So essentially that's the two ways our business generates revenue or you know, when you look at it, it's fees. Uh, there is some opportunity for consulting revenue for businesses uh, and, and typically pension funds or institutions or, or larger investment houses to say, look, we want to build ourselves, but given your 15 years plus insight into this market, can you pass on some of your knowledge to us to help us? Uh, and it's quite difficult to set up operations to invest in India. So given we've made that journey, some firms approach us uh, with uh, passing on that knowledge to help, which we're open to. Okay, so you have, you know, many systems in place and um, obviously, you know, doing this, you've gained a lot of experience from the beginning stages, you know, in the early stages, how did you go about, you know, going through the learning curve? How did you know um, exactly how to build India investment and um, from the ground up? 
Yeah, so I guess the people involved with the business, um, you, you have to gather a group of people who have complementary skills. So uh, my background is pretty much investments. I had to learn sales and marketing from scratch because I'd never done it. I'd been one of those nerds who sat in front of a computer mm-hmm. and just looked at charts uh, if I was to put in a sort of a cliche statement. Um, and I had to learn how to go out, meet people, gain their trust, build networks and have them invest in our fund whilst I was still handling the investment capability. My partner and co-founder in India was an expert in operations and finance. He did all the things that I didn't like doing. And, you know, so we never get in each other's way, um, but we have trust in each other. So I think you kind of have to surround yourself with a team of people who are, in our case, we're all equals and all uh, contributors to the business and all brought different skill sets. That's the best way for it to work. Otherwise, uh, at some point, success, and we're really just starting to get to that point of success and bring division. In terms of um, like the business, so we talked about the revenue model. Um, how do you, I guess, who are your clients? Like, what does that profile of client look like? And how do you go about like secure them? Is it, you know, you have one-on-one meetings with them? Do you use digital marketing strategies? Like, how do you acquire, like, what is the profile and how do you acquire that profile of customer uh, for your business? Uh, today, uh, assets, which is essentially the investments in our fund, are broken up into one-third family offices. So that's wealthy families who have, uh, in Australia and New Zealand, they're usually first generation, so they have made the wealth. They don't know how to invest the wealth necessarily, apart from the industry that they've succeeded from, and they're trying to build diversity. Uh, so, you know, one third of our assets come from them. They were the initial investors. We had to find uh, the ones uh, that were interested or may be interested in the India story or markets like that. The next third are high net worth and walk in off the street. So that is direct investors. Um, you know, we may have sourced them from part of our network or they may have heard about us. They've filled out a form uh, and you know it's come more through a direct source. The third is financial planning clients. So uh, financial planners are essentially our clients and then they have a network of clients. So we um, pitch to them about the prospects of India. And, you know, the, the second part of your question, which is how do we do it? So far, most of it has been network face-to-face contact. Uh, digital social media is something we're learning all the time in terms of not necessarily as a selling point or a transaction point, but a knowledge point. So, uh, you know, if I look at the key successes of our business, it's been around taking people to India. So I was very much a believer that you won't have that light bulb moment about India until you're there. And you're not just thinking it's a couple of guys in a shed with a plan uh, building a business, which you know a lot of people think outsourcing, you know, that's what India, that's how India works. But it's when you go there and understand the power of scale and consumption infrastructure, the opportunities there, that we felt a lot of people kind of had a light bulb moment and said, I should have some money uh, in this story. So uh, we've learned to think differently about how we market and 
about how we sell um, because the conventional methodology works for conventional investments. So, you know, you kind of have to reinvent the box. So you mentioned that, you know, you're acquiring most of your clients through networking, right? How are you going about networking when you're um, based in Sydney, but then your clients are in India? Oh, so our, our investments are in India. But oh, okay. The client, okay. Yeah, but the clients are Australia, New Zealand. It's still a very relevant question. Um, we have, you know, things like LinkedIn, we've used, uh, in fact, our first few large investors came from LinkedIn, which not many people believe. Um, but it's about reading up on people's thoughts, philosophies, uh, what they invest in. You know, if someone says we're trying to build something stable, certain, uh, we like taking uh, very low risk, uh, we like, uh, you know, fixed income or or something very with that hints at basically stability is their core, then it's likely that they probably wouldn't consider an investment like India. But if someone says, we think outside the box, uh, we admit that there are other things that we don't know about, and we're seeking growth for our clients long-term, then we might say, is it something that you'd be interested in? Uh, here are some of the critical charts that you might look at initially, which might be five things. Uh, to get, see if their appetite is, uh, is uh, at least at the initial stage, there for a discussion. So it is a lot of hard work, um, but I think what we try and do is rather than have a broad, wide open funnel, try and build enough uh, knowledge about someone such that the chances once they enter the funnel uh, is, is greater that they can end up at the end point making an investment. Okay, gotcha. And with the prospective clients that are not so much, you know, um, on the same page with you, you know, in terms of not being, not thinking outside of the box and, and things of that nature, what do you do with them per se? Like, do you continue that conversation or do you kind of let them know you're not the right fit? How do you go about that? No, you ne we'd never let them know that they weren't the right fit because that then is essentially, I guess, saying, uh, you know, we we won't converse with you. What okay. we do, yeah, I mean, but it's such a important as, aspect because what we have to do is there are certain people that you will pitch to who will uh, say, okay, I'm interested. There are other people where you know they may not be interested, but something else in their world might tick to say you should look at India. And then all you have to do is make sure that they're aware you exist because at the mm -hmm. right time, they will come to you. Um, so for example, you know, there was a recent newspaper article talking about the success, success of our business. And a lot of people who had said, oh, I probably wouldn't invest in India, then reached out because it's all almost like affirmation from an external party is needed before they kind of uh, think about, hey, everyone else seems to be doing this and why aren't I? So there are many forces that you have to think about. You have to stay present and um, I think not too pushy. Uh, it's not in my personality to keep uh, pushing when someone says no, but there's mm -hmm. subtle ways you can still make that approach. That's a great, yeah, that's a great question. I, I think being in sales myself, 
it's a very fine line between being pushy and, you know, um, on top of mind for prospective clients. And yeah, like you were saying, LinkedIn, I feel like is such an underrated um, tool for customer acquisition. I feel like a lot of people still haven't figured it out, which is great. I'll keep using it. Um, um, in terms of like competition um, for, so like your clients, like, you know, they have a certain portfolio of money that they need to invest in. They have several different investment vehicles they can choose. And obviously capital markets is one part of that maybe investment strategy. Um, how, I guess I'm looking for an excuse to talk about crypto in some way, but um, <laughs> You know, how, because like they only have X number of dollars. Everyone has X, a certain amount of money. And part of that is, you know, capital markets. But as more and more conversation and like, you know, you talked about for your company, external validation and more, you know, buzz about you helped create more, um, I guess, social proof that what you guys are doing was good and the distraction there. Similar to like with crypto, the whole, in general, the conversation is becoming that this might be a valid form of investing or at least kind of diversifying your portfolio. How do you look at crypto? Is it a, a threat to your company in the sense that money that could potentially go to investing with you will go to this investment class instead? Or like, how do you look at it? I think when you've grown up as a career uh, investment professional, then you always acknowledge the need for portfolio. So I don't, yeah, at the margin, some assets may take away money from other asset classes, uh, you know, but essentially uh, diversity is important. So if I was to talk to someone about crypto or be selling crypto as a concept and as an investment, then my focus would be on, you know, the additional diversity that it builds in a portfolio. It's not, it's unique, unlike some of the other more typical assets people are used to, like equities or bonds or property um, infrastructure. So I think people with an, again, people with an open mind who are looking for diversity, looking for participation, have read up on it, are inquisitive. Those are the ideal candidates for an asset class like that. As it actually builds into a, a more traditional state over the next 10, 15 years. So, it's, it's, I guess the investment industry is about knowing what your clients are thinking. Got it. Okay. Um, so, you know, kind of reflecting back on your career, you've had such diverse experience, um, even building this up from the ground up. What aspect of your career has been the most fulfilling for you and why? Oh, look, definitely the latest journey. Um, you know, which has now been about five to six years because uh, it's a culmination of some of the thinking I had in my uh, 30s. So I always believed uh, you should build a niche for yourself where you become an expert in that niche. Because being a generalist is okay if you're willing to work for the corporation most of your life, but if you want to do something which you know, you're part of and essentially, you know, you have some equity in or, uh, you know, you have ownership in, then you have to think about what is it that is a comparative advantage that I might possess relative to uh, other people who could be thinking the same thoughts. I think for, you know, one of the key aspects is uh, ego 
and being able to adjust to being able to, or, or being able to adjust to saying, I'm really not good at that. And this is what I think I'm good at. And let's go with that. Yeah, that's a hard thing for a lot of people to do. And it was hard for me as well to say, hey, I can do that too, because that person's doing it. But in essence, you should try and find your own, I suppose, um, uh, you know, uniqueness, which will then come, it's less likely to be replicated by someone else because it's your own part. That's really interesting. You know, I agree with you in terms of niching down to find your expertise, but don't you think that you have to kind of be a generalist in order to start your own company as well? Yeah, that's spot on. So that the first 20 years was about building diversity as a generalist, doing different mm -hmm. things, uh, finding out what is your passion because you probably don't know when right. you start your career. So you've got to work towards, hey, this is what I think I'm good at. Let's pursue that a little bit. Uh, let's work for corporations. Let's build my experience. You need to build a network. If it's a business that's interacting with other people, then you need to also build people who, uh, a network of, you know, uh, trust and, and people who, you know, you can count on and people who you can go to for advice. When we started in the Avenue, um, there were so many favors that we got as a business just because we'd kind of built trust in the local marketplace and built a network. So without that, we wouldn't be where we are today. So if you were dropped, say like exactly, you know, you have the same knowledge, experience, network and everything, and you were 20 years younger and you got dropped into today's world um, with the extra 20 years, um, what would you do? Would you do anything differently? And I guess yeah, the second part of the question is, what would be your advice to other young people, um, maybe specifically kind of getting into the realm of finance today? Give yourself a crystal ball and think about what might play out in 10 to 20 years time and try and align yourself to that where you will be at the peak of your career, right? So if I'm thinking 2040 today, uh, I'm thinking we've gone through a world of focus on renewable energy, uh, a transition from the way we use energy today to uh, you know something completely different. Mobility might be different. There are so many aspects that you can perhaps putting your futurist cap on can say, hey, I think that should play out. And you need to set yourself up uh, for whichever one of those is your passion to be able to then do something in that space at the relevant time. That's the hardest part. It sounds easier uh, than said than done, but um, I think that's what people don't apply their minds enough to. They tend to read what's happening today and thinking about how they can have a piece of that rather than perhaps waiting or biding their time. You know, people don't have patience. Agreed. Um I guess I'll rephrase my first part of the question because I realize it's a bit confusing in the sense that, um, so if you were you, but you were 20 years younger, but you were in today's world, does that yeah. change anything you would have done? Like, would you still have done India Avenue or would there be, because now you have this extra 20 years, do you feel like you would have tried, like there might've been a different business or a different niche you might've tapped into? Uh, look, I, 
I can genuinely say I'm doing something that I really want to do. And in fact, some people say, oh, look, you know, when are you going to sell this business to someone else and to sit on the board? I don't want to do that. I actually have created something that I like working in. So I'm happy to do that. So how? what else if I was 30 instead of 50? then probably I would have some more runway and I wouldn't uh, push it because perhaps the, the finances I have wouldn't allow me to work as part of a startup. I'd need to build a base uh, of some security before I did this. But I would still be trying to think towards with the knowledge that I have, how can I build a better version of what I have today? You've always got to think that you can improve and be better than what you are. Otherwise, uh, you become stagnant. And um, in the spirit of self-improvement, are there any kinds of you know, best practices or um, rituals that you engage in, even in your daily routines that have kind of been integral to your success? Um, I think you have to be able to switch off at some, you know, I see a lot of people who have started businesses, who have founders, who are uh, integrally involved in what they do. They don't uh, switch off. So they're always thinking about the one thing, the sole goal. And people say you need that uh, to make something a success. I do think sometimes they, you know, forego the personal development uh, and and you know roundedness that you might need uh, to be more so, uh, sustaining in the longer term rather than burning yourself out. So for me, ever since I was a child, sports has played a huge role. Uh, not that I'm very good at anything, but uh, just in terms of participating, uh, being passionate about something which can reflect on what I do day to day. And I think you need that. You find your reflection because you'll need to go to that uh, at certain points when things look really bad and say, it's not so bad. I'm a big fan of, I guess, building on the spirit of self-improvement. Um, I don't like to call them failures, but like, or I guess learning lesson, but in like the last, you know, actually in the span of your building your business, but maybe more recently, what's been something that, you know, an ex a, a experience centered around failure and what did you learn from that failure? Yeah, so when we started, um, the first couple of years were really tough. So the way we invest money is focused on the India growth story. So we're typically buying listed companies which are uh, benefiting from a thematic of, you know, young population growth in the uh, employment, infrastructure, outsourcing, all the thematics that help India grow and is what it is today. Now. In 2018 and 19, India was slowing and there was a lot of changes made in terms of reforms that had created confusion, blockages. Uh, you're shifting from an economy which is cash-based to digitized. Again, a lot of change required. Uh, instead of shopping at the corner store, you're now shopping at the mall. Again, you know, different psyche. So our business is built towards that real growth story. The growth story wasn't working out. Clients were saying, hey, are you sure this is going to work? Like, you know, it's been a couple of years now and 
I'm not sure if India is a valid investment case and whether you guys can do it because we were underperforming the benchmark. So a lot of soul searching, a lot of, hey, we've been here before, it's okay, um, patience is required, all those sort of things. I feel you need to have failures to succeed. Uh, again, it's a bit of a cliche, but in reality, when you go through the failures, that's when you ask yourself questions will help you and you remember and um, be humble when you have some success. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there's this phrase that says, you know, the, the person who fails the fastest is also the fastest to succeed. So that really resonates with me as well. Um, you know, something that I'm wondering is um, entrepreneurship is really difficult. And um, I, I think every founder can really relate to that. What really motivates you to keep going when you're experiencing um, failures or just when you're feeling a lack of motivation as well, what gets you going? Yeah, no, that's the essential question when it comes to being an entrepreneur is, um, you know, you have to be self-motivated. I think if you're reliant on others to give you motivation all the time, at some point, the others won't be there. Uh, so you need to have inner belief and you need to have an approach which says, okay, if there's a problem, I need to find a way around it. I think a lot of people say, oh, it's a problem. It must be the environment, not me. So, you know, that's what I meant before about ego. If you can actually delve your ego and say, hey, is it me? Is it um, something that I'm doing? Is it something I can change? Uh, and, uh, you know, you're self-motivated, then you'll seek change. You'll seek betterment. You'll seek improvement. So I think that's how it works because otherwise you'll just be stuck in uh, blaming other things for failures. I love that. Um, and I guess a good way to kind of end the discussion is, you know, just looking to the future uh, in terms of India Avenue as a company and yourself personally, uh, where would you like to see both the company and yourself in five years? Yeah, look, uh, you know, in any investment management business, you want to see your asset base grow. So more clients, uh, increased investment from the existing clients. Um, perhaps more regions than Australia and New Zealand. Um, do I have a dream and vision to make this a massive investment organization? Firstly, realistically, it can't be in my lifetime anyway. Uh, and I think it's more for me about the quality of the relationships we have with clients. And there is nothing that gives you more happiness than making someone else wealthy. You know, like when someone comes up and says, oh, thanks so much, you know, because of that, um, we have this, this and this, and it's helped us a lot. That's the most gratifying thing. So just building quality relationships, growing the business to a point where, uh, you know, we can kind of take uh, little steps towards broadening it without going away from our core goal. You know, people often ask me, oh, would you do you know, the next country after this, is it Africa? And I say, no, my passion is to be involved in this related to India. And, you know, once we achieve those goals, 
I'm I'm happy to play perhaps a lesser role and look at someone who from a succession planning who can uh, perhaps run it better than me going forward and have more passion going forward. Uh, so it's about keeping an open mind as you make the journey. Got it. Well, I mean, I want to thank you, McGovern, for um, you know jumping on, sharing your story. Uh, we're very impressed with kind of you know uh, what you've been able to accomplish in such a short period of time with your company, and I'm sure the people listening will uh, really kind of uh, benefit from kind of the insights you've shared. Um, so thank you again for jumping on the uh, Tamil Innovator Spotlight with us today, and um, for those of you listening, thank you so much, and uh, we will look forward to connecting on the next one. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate the time and enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much, Mahindran.